Hello and welcome back to On The Continent, our weekly look at the big stories and latest news from across European football. I'm Luke Moore. And I'm Andy Brassel. Andy, you must be absolutely brimming with excitement at the prospect of actual professional football being played within the next 48 hours. I'm responsibly brimming with excitement, Luke. Of course, there are um, some health and hygiene matters that are, are paramount at the moment. But yeah, I'm, with a little bit of reservation, excited. Well, don't get that. That everyone listening is the is the sign and the sound of Andy Brassel not getting carried away. So don't worry about that. You're in safe <laughs> hands here. Before I get into the uh, into the detail of today's show, um, please do check out a Blizzard episode, the Greatest Game Show, in association with the Blizzard. It's coming out on Saturday, particularly for OTC fans. Uh, I think author Dominic Bliss has joined Marcus and Jonathan to discuss the Grande Torino side from the 1940s, which would be absolutely fascinating. Um, something I'm particularly looking forward to. And uh, the Mailbag Show for Patreon subscribers is out as usual on Monday, as it is every Monday. Andy and Marcus answer your questions about European football. So if you're a Patreon subscriber, make sure to listen to that. If you're not and you want to listen to it, it's patreon.com forward slash football ramble daily. Right, that's the admin done. Uh, Let's get cracking. As ODB once said, first things first, I know the show has been German heavy in recent weeks, but I make no apology for that because they've been in the vanguard of the prospective return to football after the COVID outbreak. And so we've had to stay close to developments over in Germany. This week is no exception because, as we just said, the Bundesliga and the Bundesliga's Vi will return on Saturday. Andy, I think a nice way of approaching this is for us to do a quick rundown of the big things people need to know ahead of the weekend. And Because I think it will serve a couple of purposes. Firstly, it will let people listening who don't follow German football that closely know what's happened so far this season and they'll be able to get into it more. And for those of us who love German football but have a poor memory, that's me. It'll be a nice <laughs> refresher. Um, shall we start with the title? I mean, we should start at the top, really. Let's start with the title race. Bayern yeah. Munich are top, four points ahead of Borussia Dortmund, five ahead of Leipzig. But before everyone sighs collectively, that doesn't really tell the entire story of it so far, does it? It doesn't tell the whole story. And uh, who knew that ODB stood, stood for Old Dirty Bundesliga, eh? <laughs> old Deutsche Bundesliga. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of abandoned the ODB quite halfway through because I realised that it gets quite quite sweary and quite dirty as per. Uh, so uh, I just sacked it off after first things first because he says, first things first, you're fucking with the worst. And then he goes on a bit of a sweary rant after that. So I sacked it off. I hope people will forgive me. I just wanted to get an ODB mention into the show. Uh, Andy, you're, you of all people will understand that because you are um- Wu-Tang forever. Absolutely, I, I certainly am, and I'm, I'm sure there are uh, people out there at the moment listening and thinking, oh, I'm sure there's an article in sort of working out which Wu-Tang member is which Bundesliga club. Yeah, um, if it's of not, the sh- you should pitch it straight away <laughs> after, this, after this record. Friend, friends of the show, Ryan Hun and Musa Akwonga, I'm looking at you. Yeah, that's their area. <laughs> it really is their area. Um, but but so far, it's, as you say, when you look at the table, it's easy, Luke, to think plus a change. And especially because Dortmund go back in with um, 
a high pressure game against Chalker. And of course, it's a very unusual situation, but the, the Rafia derby is, is always big. We'll come back to that in a bit. And the fact that they almost have to win to keep pace with, with Bayern because there's that, that four point gap. Um, but I think when you look at the top of the table at the moment, it's really a tale of three coaches, or maybe we could extend it to four and five, but we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, Bayern at the start of the season it felt as if they could be genuinely challenged and not so much actually because of the the, the strength of the others although of course Dortmund and Lucien Favre did run them very close last season but because Niko Kovac the coach with which Bayern started the season was was a sitting duck really you know there was no unanimous support for him really at the start of the season but there was a strong feeling that there was no one really better out there of course, he won the double too. But um, uh, uh, when you look at what finished Kovac in the end, that 5-1 defeat at um, Eintracht Frankfurt, which was really shocking. I was o- over there at the time. It was the first weekend in um, November. And I-, I remember watching it before uh, going to the Berlin Derby. between Tough one uh, for him Indiana to take as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it, it was. Um, but, you know, you, you saw Bayern like, probably a month before that when they went to Tottenham and absolutely roasted them 7-2. And I think those who, if we're going back to the beginning and talking about people who've got um, a casual understanding of the Bundesliga or watch it now and then or, or, or whatever, it's easy to see Bayern and think, oh, they're ruthless. They're a machine, especially on a night like that when, as Pochettino said at the time, and it wasn't excuse-making, it was fact, that pretty much everything that Bayern hit went in. And yeah. that was so out of character with the rest of their season because if you look at, probably the biggest game of their season to to date at at that point is when they went away to Leipzig, who under their new coach, Julian Nagelsmann, were, I think for me at least, considered one of the challengers at the start of the season, um, notwithstanding a a few little adaptation issues. And um, Bayern went there in, what, the third, fourth game of the season and and played exceptionally well at at Red Bull Arena. but, but they still didn't win. They missed a lot, lot of chances and it was a 1-1 draw. They let a lead slip. And um, I think that told us a couple of things about the start of the season. Firstly, that Bayern still had the talent that made them the best team in the Bundesliga, but were they able to take advantage of that, particularly under under Kovac? Um, there was clearly enough doubt for them to want to bid him. There was clearly enough doubt that at the start of the season, the club appointed Hansi Flick as an assistant to him. It wasn't Niko Kovac picking an assistant. It was the club going, here you go. There's a little bit of help. Almost as if they were covering themselves for the possibility that they would have to put Kovac in the ejector seat mid-season, which is exactly what happened. And Hans, uh, Hans Can I just say, Andy, that's, a, very well. that's a metaphor. That is a metaphor. That's not how they actually did it. Uh, so don't write in. I, I, I don't know about that because if you've seen the Lego Ninjago film, when Lord <laughs> Garmadon gets rid of his Shark Army generals and he goes, you're fired. And he literally fires them out of the top of his volcano lair. I imagine that's pretty much how it works at the Allianz Arena. <laughs> it's absolutely possible. It is possible. It is possible. No offense, Carl Heinz from a nigger. Um, but I, I, I think the, the fact that, that Bayern post-flick have been far more Bayern-like in the way they've played. It's not just the results. It's the way they've played. It's the way the players have felt. 
he had their respect straight away in a way that Kovac never did. And I think that's really important. Um, they've uh, not just done well in terms of results, but they've they've been expressive. They've been aggressive. They've scored goals. They're the highest goal scorers in, in the division. And, you know, Dortmund score a lot of goals too. So that's that's very impressive. Um, to go back to the, the Leipzig thing, Nagelsmann was always going to, lift an already good team a little bit higher. What was interesting, going back to that Leipzig-Bayern game, which I still think is one of the definitive games of the Bundesliga season so far, um, in the early part of the season, before he'd really properly established his print on the team, um, they were a little bit tentative at home. They could counter-attack um, with the best of them away. Um, but before they learnt the sort of versatility that it took him a couple of years to teach Hoffenheim, and the fact that he's done that and they've they've incorporated those changes of pace in such a short space of time shows, A, what a great coach he is and how better how much better he is even than in the fairly recent past. But it also shows that he's coaching better players, of course. Um, the bit where they beat... Zenit St. Petersburg in the Champions League, um, which I guess would be about one and a half, two months um, from memory after they had that draw with Bayern. That was the bit where they started getting it together at at home a little bit more. And that's what saw them go to the the top of the Bundesliga, of course, until they were knocked off. They had a couple of um, draws at the start of um, of 2020. Um, And in between, of course, you've, you've got Dortmund, who again, have emerged as um, the, the, the next best, as the most likely challenges. But there have been two, probably three moments this season where it looked as if they could ju- justifiably fire their coach, Lucien Favre. And uh, Favre is a coach who I think has huge respect for the jobs he's done at Borussia Mönchengladbach, of course, back in Switzerland before that, but in a Bundesliga context in Borussia Mönchengladbach, who he saved from almost certain relegation and then got them into the Champions League the next season. You got Hertha Berlin quite close to the title and, you know, we'll come to Hertha's season in a little bit. More but, on them in a minute. But, but yeah, that sounds like an absolute dream. Um, but there, there was, there was a, a feeling that though he's done some very good work at Dortmund, that his um, excessive caution was holding this team back. Um, and when they, earlier in the season, they uh, drew three all with uh, Wooden Spooners Paderborn, who have got the lowest budget in the Bundesliga by a long while. And Dortmund was three nil down at half time in that game and came back to get a point. Um, it, it felt as if it was too far already. And there are a couple of other little little moments like that. Um, but it's, it's almost been, it seems a bit uncharitable to Lucien Favre, but so far that Dortmund's successes have almost been despite him rather than because of him. It's been the players stepping out and, and showing what they can do. And um, of course, Jaden Sancho has been in wonderful form all season. He's been absolutely peerless. And there is an argument that he is, if, if not the best player in the Bundesliga this season, pretty close. I think really only Robert Lewandowski separates him from that that title because Lewandowski has been better than ever, Lewandowski. And we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to that theme again of modern strikers being even better in their 30s than they were in their, their, their 20s because it's an interesting one. Um, but really what's worked so well for Dortmund in 2020, and they've had this great mini recent run, 
um, when I say recent, uh, you know, the last available fixtures, um, they've won four successive in the Bundesliga. It's the fact that, of course, they've had Erling Braut Holland come in, a very unfarved type of striker who has helped him out of a massive hole because with the injuries to Paco Alcacer that, and, and then the subsequent sale of him to Real, they, they had a lot of nine and a half type players like Royce and Goetze, but, but no proper penalty box predator, which now they have. Um, and the other thing has been Emre Can, who's made an absolutely enormous difference in the centre of midfield alongside Axel Witzel. So, those are those are your three real title contenders. I, I suppose there'll be people saying I'm doing a bit of a disservice to um, Borussia Mönchengladbach and Bayer Leverkusen, who are respectively Gladbach one point behind Leipzig, Leverkusen three points behind Leipzig, and um, uh, Marco Rosso has done a brilliant job at Gladbach. They were leading the table for quite a bit. I think the fact that they've dropped off a little bit is normal. Is regressing to the mean. There are a sensible, well-run club who have less resources than the three above them. But Rosa's made them absolutely terrific to watch. And Leverkusen are really interesting because, of course, it's it's Peter Bosch who was written off after um, three or four, like, started brilliantly, but then quickly fell into a huge hole moments with, with Dortmund. And um, it, it always felt a better fit for him Leverkusen for me because you know you've got the sort of players who there who are, are quick technically talented are going to enjoy his style of football and there's not the same amount of pressure that there is at Dortmund now I know people will say oh Dortmund they're a cuddly fun lovable club but Hans-Joachim Watzke their CEO has always said well look you know we can't be St Pauli nowadays we have to actually win mm. because we've got nine million yeah. nine million fans worldwide and that's something Absolutely. we touched on wasn't it in the recent Ramble Book Club with um, mm. building the yellow wall by by Uli Hesse so that those I guess are the main themes at, at the top of the Bundesliga yeah and, and I think there is a temptation to say okay right so as you said at the top of this Andy plus a change I mean nothing's gonna nothing's gonna be different it's gonna be a straight shootout between Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich will win it but I think there's another thing that you haven't mentioned here which is I, I feel is really important in the context of, of what's going to happen in German football now I know as you said to me either at the st- start of the show or just off air I can't remember Christian Sievert said we are playing this weekend for the right to continue to play because it's a real test it's a litmus test it's a it's a uh, it's just see how you go and see if everyone can manage the uh, the conditions properly and and keep everyone safe and, and happy and speaking of managing the conditions this is an unprecedented situation yes every single team that you've mentioned there down to and including Bayer Leverkusen you just think Schalke are a bit too far behind and they're a bit too inconsistent but you know Bayer Leverkusen are eight points off of off of Bayern Munich now ordinarily at this stage of the season you'd be saying well there's no chance they've just got to finish as high as they can but this situation has never happened before there's going to be there's going to be no fans there's going to be a completely different feel to how football is played in the Bundesliga from this weekend onwards and if it continues all the way through to to a, to a close, which we dearly hope it does, the team that is going to be the most successful is the team that's going to manage the conditions properly. So it gives you a whole new way of looking at it. Who are the coaches and the managers and the players who are going to be able to own this situation better than anyone else? Because it's tight enough in there for that to make a huge difference. Now, yeah. a slight change, just a slight um change to the rules or the laws, I suppose, which makes this a little bit easier for the bigger clubs. And that's obviously the fact that we can they can use more substitutes now. 
Not um, yet. Not yet. But, but when does that come in, Andy? It's, it's, it's available to the clubs, but they've they've not agreed on it yet. So it, it, right, uh, forgive me. Okay, so that's not so that's not going to be a factor then. So in which case then the it point might, I'm it, making it might, stands might much, be next much stronger week. than that then. It might be next week. Okay. So, so it might be if Bayern aren't, aren't winning. <laughs> yeah, they, they're gonna they're gonna talk about it. They're gonna talk about it. But what do you um, think about that? The idea of managing the conditions and how important that's going to be, and how different that is to a usual Bundesliga season. It's, it's enormously important, Luke. And um, you know, I, I know it's easy to to, to mock um, marketing phrases, but that uh, phrase that the Bundesliga uses to market itself globally, football as it's meant to be. I think it's interesting because the idea is they're bringing not just a certain standard of football, they're bringing atmosphere into your front room. They would argue even more so than the Premier League because yeah. these these are grounds that are all full every week. They have quite an unfettered atmosphere, certainly compared to what's happened in the in, in the Premier League over the last five years or so, five years plus maybe. So I think... The fact that there are no fans, it almost makes it a different sport, doesn't it? I mean, we can talk about it in financial terms as everyone has been talking about everything in financial terms. Uh, yeah, if we're going to go to that, the Rafia derby between Dortmund and Schalke this Saturday afternoon, that is going to cost Dortmund, you could say, 5 million euros in gate receipts. But I think the real impact is is far more than that because you're looking at a stadium in which you have 25,000 fans behind one of the goals you know mm. it's a, you know the, the best attended stadium in 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 european football and so to play a derby without that it's it's quite an ask actually isn't it yeah and and it is i think it's going to be really odd for the players i think as much as they be. can prepare themselves for it and the, and how they can you know go through their routine and and the, and the and the methods they go through to to to, to perform as best they can, um, I still think this is going to be really really tough. I, I think the intensity, which comes almost automatically and and subconsciously from playing at somewhere like the Westfalen Stadion, um, is is essentially entirely informed by the atmosphere generated by by the fans. Now it's it's a cliche, but it's so special, isn't it? I mean, you experienced yeah. it for the first time what a couple of months ago when we were over there. Um, but it, it really is, even for games that, you know, aren't top billing uh, A-star games, Westfalen is is special. And you can say that about quite a few other grounds in the Bundesliga. 100%. And, and so and so when, when when the players go out onto that pitch for the first time on Saturday um, for, for this, this big derby game, as you, as you rightly say, you, you, I mean, all bets are off, really. You, you, could, you could see any result here. Schalke have been, obviously, as you said, they've, they've been poor at times this season. They've been in a terrible run of form coming into this game. But that doesn't matter, not because it's a derby game, but because all the parameters have changed. So it'll be a fascinating, yeah. it'll be a fascinating weekend of football for lots of different reasons. We're pleased to see it back, but I, I maintain, and he's got the knowledge, and he's got all the, the inside info. But the team that manages these ex, these um, conditions the best uh, is going to be do a really do a really good job of finishing the season strongly. Down the so bottom, are you so, are you saying Borussia Mönchengladbach because they've got cardboard fans behind the goal? <laughs> is that going to make a difference? We don't know. If it, is it going to make a difference if it rains? Probably. <laughs> well, well. In, interestingly, we talked about the atmosphere. Now Dortmund are training today in the stadium, and most of the teams are, are, are training in the in their stadiums as they're part of their closed quarantine camp at the moment. Um, Dortmund are training with crowd noise and goal music today. 
Wow. Okay. Interesting. That's interesting. That's a really nice idea as well. That'll be. That'll be I, I like to. I'm looking forward to seeing how it manifests itself. Um, down, down the bottom of the table, Andy. Though I want to turn my te- turn our attention to that for a bit because sure. Uh, um, that that's an interesting situation as well. Um, it, people might perhaps be surprised to see Verda Bremen down there. Um, can you can you explain a bit about why that's happened and and who the candidates are for for relegation and why? Well. I don't want to say that Paderborn are gone because they're only six points away from the playoff place. And as you say, things could change rapidly in this sort of environment. However, it's likely that Paderborn will go um, because, as as we said before, they they have the the lowest budget in the in the in the division um, of, of of some eleven million euros a year. That's not just for the players; that's for travelling expenses and everything. It's an mm. incredibly low budget for a, a top flight team in an elite league. Um, but the, the fact that they're only a couple of points behind Werder Bremen is is remarkable. Now, Werder Bremen have been incrementally dropping and dropping and dropping for quite a long time now. They were last in the Champions League in 2011. Of course, I'm sure a lot of listeners will remember them as, as double winners in uh, 2004 um, under Thomas Schaaf, who was there for as, as player and coach for, what, 40 years. It's an incredible story. Um but, but they are kind of enthralled to the past in in a certain way. Uh, the sporting director is. That's no way to talk about Claudio Pizarro. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're relying on a forty year old, I mean, you, you might have a slight problem. He's um, actually forty one, so the joke's on you there. Yeah, there we go. Uh, <laughs> even, even if there's, you know, uh, no no doubt that he is part of the Werder Bremen furniture, and it's, it's it's great to see him still back there now and then. Um, Frank Bauman, uh, who was the captain of that 2004 double winning side, is um, the sporting director. And if we go back to uh, the last coach but one, it was Victor Skripnik, who was previously the under-23 coach and and before that was a player for the double winning side. So they've, they've kind of found it hard to, to let go of that fabric of the past, which is so, so important for them. And that stability was always so important from them. If you start back in the 80s when uh, Otto Rehagel was was the coach and, and and brought them really from being a provincial club to, to, to prominence, that stability is something they've mimicked but not really provided over the last couple of years. And it's, it's been really difficult for them. Um, they've been left behind a little money-wise, but still there's – if you look at the size of some of the clubs immediately above them, not just Fortuna Dusseldorf, but then you look at Mainz, Augsburg, you know, Union Berlin in, in mid-table, there's no reason that they shouldn't be a bit higher up the table. It's, it's, it's a management failure. There's no doubt about that. We also have to say, I've had an absolutely horrendous injury list this season, which has been a big problem for them. Again, maybe you could argue that's, that's something to do with, with coaching and, and, and um, physical management as, as as well as luck. But they have been heading this way for a long time and it it just hasn't really been addressed. Now, Florian Kofelt, their coach, is someone who I think is a decent coach I have a lot of time for. And when he came in um, a year and a half ago, they were struggling at the bottom of the table. And he was, well, you know what? We've had enough of defensive football. We want to play front foot football. We're going to really swashbuckle our way out of this. And it worked at first, but um, the, 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 now it's, it's, it's got to a point where 
they've they've just some summarily shot themselves in the foot week after week after week. They've had two wins since September. They've not won a home game, and bearing in mind they're hosting Leverkusen on Monday night, they've not won a home game since the first of September, and they were really quite lucky to win that one as well. I think Augsburg is still wondering how they lost it. Um, so they've got a whole plethora of issues. I mean, um, Milot Rashica, who's their star turn, he was um, linked with a move to Leipzig earlier in the week, and you know there was um, you know actually someone. Uh, a couple of papers coming out and saying he'd already agreed this this move to, to to Leipzig. Now Leipzig have come out and said that's not the case. You know, no one's committing money to any player in this current environment as things stand. But I, I think it shows that if you're talking about those key players moving on already, it feels a bit like relegation is kind of an inevitability. Only, even if there's only four points between them and Fortuna Dusseldorf in the playoff place. Now, this is the other thing. As the season is scheduled, obviously, they hope it will go to its natural end at the moment. If it does, um, there'll be a two-legged promotion, uh, promotion relegation playoff, as there always is. So, current third from bottom, Fortuna Dusseldorf, uh, coached by Uwe Rosler, would um, play third from top in the Bundesliga Zwei, which is currently Hamburg. I mean, that would be quite an occasion, right? Um, yeah. I mean, they've said that if the season um, has to be abandoned at any point, what they would do is, much as they've done in France, they would cancel the playoff, obviously, relegate the bottom two and promote the top two from from Bundesliga's fire. Um, but for Werder, the other disadvantage they have is because, as you might be aware, it's not just Angela Merkel who's made the governmental side of the decisions in this. It's been um, conducted in, in symphony with the 16 federal leaders of the, the 16 federal regions of, of, of Germany. So um, Werder Bremen were not allowed to start training at the same point as all the others. So they and Eintracht Frankfurt were the two teams for those reasons that wanted the Bundesliga to start restart a week later. And the other clubs or, or the other regions overruled them. Um, so they've had a little bit less training. Now, Kofeld's talked about how he's had to be a little bit more creative in training, how when they were training in groups of five, he'd like pair a goalkeeper with a striker and a couple of defenders and they'd, they'd, they'd sort of do it from there. But for them to ha- have had less team training and the fact they're very low on confidence, it's, it's tough, I think, to see them getting out of it. Yeah, I think I think the managers there in those kind of clubs need to use it as a reset, don't they? They need to say, look, this is a great leveller for us. Um, where the Bremen have got some good players, you know. I mean, you've, mm. it's a great summary of them there, and I know they've had injuries, but they'll have some players that casual watchers of German football who will now undoubtedly become keen watchers of German football because they have to. They'll have some players in there that you, you'll recognise in the shape of Davy Klassen, Nuri Shaheen, Claudio Pizarro, those types of, of, yeah. of players. So so it's they're, they're an interesting team to keep an eye on. And if and if it's, it's a better, in the same way that it's an opportunity to upset the apple cart at the top of the table, the principle is exactly the same down the bottom as well. Um, so it'll be Are you subtly saying that's the team you should support, Ramblers? Because they'll, they'll no, be looking for it. No. They'll be looking for a bit of direction from you. I mean, I'm far too neutral to give any advice, but <laughs> you, you might want to. 
Um, well, I, I shared Archie Ryan Tut's um, flowchart on um, on the Football Ramble <laughs> Twitter to choose your Bundesliga team. But I, the way I see it, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again, and I'll make no apology for it. I've been absolutely lumbered with Portsmouth my entire life. So you bet your bollocks <laughs> I am going for Borussia Dortmund when I get to choose a team. Because at least they're fun and enjoyable, and sometimes they win stuff. So I'm Borussia Dortmund, and I'll make no apology for that. I, I, what I'm saying, though, is that if you look at the, it's exactly the same principle as what I was saying earlier. Werder Bremen would be in big, big trouble had this situation been been different. They're in big trouble anyway, but they might be able to use it as a bit of a platform, a bit of a leveler, because there are going to be teams who are going to have an absolutely terrible time adjusting to these conditions. And if you can master the conditions, you might have a chance. But anyway, I now want to move on to a section that has been specifically designed so that Andy can talk about the shit show that is Hertha Berlin. <laughs> and what I've, uh, what I'm going to do is just read the following sentence and let Andy get on with it. And the sentence is thus. Hertha Berlin has appointed former Germany goalkeeper Jens Lehmann (laughs) to take Jürgen Klinsmann's place on the Bundesliga club supervisory board. Just when you thought that Hertha Berlin couldn't get any more mad that Lars Windhorst, who chucked 200 odd million pounds into the club last year, couldn't go any more off-piste, this happens. It's it's pretty special, isn't it? Uh, I mean... You know they've they've kind of uh, cornered the market in ritual humiliations in the Bundesliga <laughs> this season. Yeah, yeah. And um, after the after the whole phase Jürgen, one of their plan, after the whole Jurgen Klinsmann one, and again, again if you've not um, paid particularly close attention to this this season uh, summary, uh, Klinsmann is on the advisory board. Uh, Klinsmann is then appointed coach of the team after Antikovic goes, um, which seems a bit weird, but you know, he, he, he knows the club at least, you know, he's not coming from the cold, you know, he understands the ambitions of Lars Windhorst, the major investor or all the rest of it. Um, he, uh, is met by a huge crowd of photographers for the first home game against <laughs> Dortmund. He's uh, taking pictures and video of himself for Instagram, and Instagram will become a theme with Hertha. Um, <laughs> uh, I've got to tell you, or, or Facebook yeah, Live. Yeah, because I just cut this thing. When you're talking theme. to me about um, people choosing their Bundesliga team, I mean, I would I just like to add an addendum to that. Don't choose Hertha for so <laughs> many reasons. Choose any other team. Do not choose Hertha. Do uh, do because uh, you know there's 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 plenty going on. That's what that's what I would say. So uh, <laughs> Klinsmann's filming himself um, with you can see the back of his phone case. Obviously, it's an Adidas phone case. They're sponsored by Nike. Um, <laughs> then uh, there's 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 doubt over whether uh, Klinsmann can go on the bench anymore because he might not have the up to date. Uh, coaching qualifications they're in a draw at home in california uh which uh, a mate goes into his house uh, photocopies them which uh, earns him some sort of amnesty um then he leaves after realizing he can't take over the general manager michael pretz's job because it's his job (laughs) (laughs) he leaves all the coaching to alex nuri anyway who's his assistant former verda bremen coach um so, uh, yeah, he, he wishes Nuri good luck over um, WhatsApp and all the rest of it. But uh, Nuri's thrust into into dealing with this. And uh, now they decide they need um, a Jürgen Klinsmann replacement. And I have to say, in terms of uh, the utter scatterbrainness <laughs> of the appointment, it's very much like for like. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think it's, it can only be a good thing for people like us. And what I should, one thing you did miss out on that is just because there was so much to squeeze in. Don't forget that Alex Nuri also left and has now been replaced by someone else in the shape of Bruno Labadia. Uh, yeah, so, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. In- incredible situation there. So keep a, keep an eye out for Herta because th- there will be absolute fireworks there. They start off uh, on Saturday away at Hoffenheim, who are a better team than them, let's be fair, but, yeah, but and, not and- by an awful lot. And her to six points above the playoff places as we stand. Exactly. So German football coming back this weekend. Looking forward to it. Um, yeah, give, give it a watch and, uh, and and enjoy it. At international level, if there's a greater honour than playing for your country, it's captain in your country. Beyond that, captain in your country in one of the big competitions, like the European Championship in 1988. Okay, I think you could be forgiven for thinking that France is done. Uh, nothing to talk about there because they decided to terminate their football uh, uh, for the season last month, obviously. They crowned PSG champions. They relegated Amiens and uh, Toulouse and said that was that. Um, Amiens have been working to try and stop relegation happening for obvious reasons. And do remember that because that little nugget is going to be key in this little discussion uh, a bit later on. Because this looks like it may well become the season that actually won't end. Your friend of mine, uh, Leon CEO Jean-Michel Olas, who gets a lot of uh, a lot of airtime on this show, chairs the assembly of the league and clubs, and he is still not happy about the rest of the season being cancelled. Um, the way he's behaving, I think, is starting to brown off quite a few other big hitters in French football. Now, he's got a nemesis, obviously, because chairman and CEOs in French football, well, everywhere really, are mad. He's got a nemesis, right? His arch enemy, Jacques-Henri Ayrault of Marseille, has even mentioned the word impeachment about Olas's behaviour, according to reports. Olas supports relegated Amiens' campaign to a null relegation and expand next season's league earn to 22 clubs. Andy, it's, it's a political shitstorm again, to use that word again, <laughs> rumbling over in France. What's happening here? And secondly, is this idea from Olas and Amiens gathering enough support to make it realistic? Uh, well... Olas is someone who's never been out of, of, of the media ever since this decision's uh, happened. He's, he's not been off Twitter, and he's one club president that definitely shouldn't be allowed on Twitter. Um, but disagree. Been... <laughs> Completely disagree. For the exactly the reasons you think he shouldn't, I think he should. Well, look, I know he's mastered tech speak, but that's no reason <laughs> for, for, a, for a 70 year old man to be, to, to be on Twitter. Um, uh, the fact that he's, he's been in the newspapers every day, he's been on uh, radio and television pretty much every day. Of course, he's unhappy about it because um, it means uh, Lyon, his club, who he's always represented excellently, of course, and I don't think there's any doubt about that, um, are not going to be in Europe for the first time in over two decades. Um, mm. the, the wider opinion from the football community is everyone's having to take a hit, just deal with it. Now, he's saying now it's about the way that um, France looks in the rest of Europe because the rest of Europe are, are still trying to find a way to carry on, that he feels it's been premature. And he's saying that is not about his club um, not making Europe. And that's why I, I guess it's sort of, 
if you're being cynical, you could say it's politically expedient for him to attach himself to this Amiens campaign and their um, president, uh, Bernard Joanna, as someone who's obviously been quite vocal himself. And he's got lots of high profile um, supporters um, for their campaign. I mean, if Olivier Sadran at Toulouse was doing this campaign, it would be ridiculous because... I mean, they were done anyway. Yeah. So there's 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 really no argument over it. But they're a club know. and also a verb. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nick and Lars Sivertson's material there. <laughs> he's not here, is he? No, no, he's not. It's a so. tribute. It's not. Uh, it's not a theft. It's a tribute. He, j- he just left it lying around in the studio. I mean, exactly. what are you meant to do? What are you meant to do? Exactly. Uh, but th- the the thing is with Amiens, uh, and I guess this is the case with any club. How can you have consequences that heavy? And let's face it, the consequences of relegation are heavier to a club of that size than they are to Lyon for not making Europe for one season, which arguably could be a, a bit beneficial for Lyon and could let them get all their ducks in order with with a bit of space in the calendar. I'm sure they don't see it like that financially, but I would argue that there's something to be said for that. Um, but but with, with Amiens, that, like, to just be cut off like that when you're still really in with a, a, a chance... Um, is 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 pretty tough to to cope with. Now they've been supported by um, local government, but they've all and regional government, but they've also been supported by uh, Laurent Blanc, uh, Antoine Camboare, people like that. So um, it, it still feels unlikely because people are just getting it straight in their their heads what's happened, and um, you, you've got. Every, everything down to the clubs working out how they're going to have this, what is really an extraordinary long preparation for next season. Now they're going to have like three weeks to a month off at some point, the players, but you know, they've got to um, retain a, a, a base level of fitness. And this is something that's not really been talked about this much, that much so far. How do you prepare as a player, having not played from the middle of March for a season that's, going to start in September. It's something that's really, really difficult. So most people are just trying to get their heads around that. And so many of these other presidents are, are feeling that, you know, we, we just want to get on with things now. And um, there's a great quote from uh, uh, Laurent Nicolin, the president of Montpellier, the, the, the son of the great Lulu Nicolin, mm. who said, um, well, Olas has spent like the last 10 years trying to reduce the amount of clubs to 18 and now he's <laughs> take 22. Yeah. <laughs> Which, it's amazing how much of a, uh, of a, of a part uh, expediency can play in these difficult times. It's, it's, it's incredible yeah. how, how shameless that, that, that people can be. But I mean, look, it's an uncertain, if you're being, if you're being fair to people or as fair as you can be, it's a difficult time. It's uncertain. People don't know yeah. what's happening. And, and exactly. so, uh, but what, what's your feeling on, I mean, if you can briefly, cause we got, we got to push on what, what is the, What's the feeling from you about how this will transpire? I don't. I don't think Amiens will get it done. I think they're really unlucky, but 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 they're going to end up with the decision standing, and I, I think that's pretty much it. Although Jean Michel Olas is writing to parliamentarians as we speak. Nothing else to do. Nothing else on. <laughs> Literally. Do you know what? I applaud it because most people be sat around watching the Last Dance on Netflix. You know, and he probably is doing that because the whole world is doing that. But at least in between episodes, he's keeping busy. Well, the thing is, they were going to have a busy summer because, you know, Paul McCartney was playing live at the Group Armour Stadium as well. <sighs> Do you know what? 
you know, how, what are people going to do without that forty-eight minute rendition of Hey Jude? It's going to be it's going to be tough for them. They're the real victims here. Um, listen, Andy, I mentioned Marseille actually earlier, didn't I? And speaking of them, they've had the best season they've had for seven or eight years. Arguably, the best season they've had since they won the league in two thousand ten. Yeah, um, and as is the uh, the custom these days in modern football, it looks like they might be facing a fight to keep hold of some of their best players, even in this uncertain time. <clears throat> there appear to be tough negotiations ahead for the aforementioned uh, Aero. Uh, it gets even more difficult for him as well because new Lekeep Coach of the Year, Andre Villas-Boas, which is now his full name, uh, has said that he won't stay if he's not given the means to compete in the Champions League. Good old Andre. That's always, always saying the bigger picture. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a quote that came out actually quite recently, despite all the other stuff that's happening. Uh, he said he doesn't want to make up the numbers. Um, so that's a problem for the for the, uh, for the the big boss at the top of the club as well. I mean, on, on, on that on one hand, there's no precedent for, for Vyash Bais leaving the club prematurely before his death. So I'm sure it's, all just, it's just all talk, I expect. But... To be semi-serious for a moment, Marseille are facing what a lot of clubs find they face in modern football. You have an above-average season, you have a good season, but you're not one of the true giants in Europe. You're going to face your team potentially being decimated. We've seen it with um, with Ajax. We've seen it um, to, to an extent. We saw it in Monaco, didn't we, as well? Um, it, it happens. Is it going to happen for Marseille or are they just not quite that good and it's not going to be as difficult as that? They are in a much worse situation than any of those previous teams you mentioned. They're in a much worse situation than, say, Monaco. Because of contracts and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. At least Monaco were able to get in a ton of wedge for the the, the players they want to move. The problem is... They spent that well, didn't they? (laughs) Yeah, they did. (laughs) The the problem has been for for Marseille for, like, since the start of the season since Villas Boas arrived really and he must have gone in with his eyes open you presume because the the players they've wanted to sell the most are the players that no one really wants to take um Kevin Strokeman and Dimitri Payet who has had a sensational season but is coming up into his mid-30s and um earns an absolutely eye-watering amount of money which is which is a huge problem so um the, the thing is that they've got a, a lot of assets that are running out of contract as well. Um, Florian Tovan's the obvious one. We spoke about him in a, in a, in a previous OTC. He's hardly played, hasn't he? He's got his own problems fitness-wise, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. But the, the fact that he came out, as we said in that Instagram video the other week, yeah. and said, well, I love Village Bosch, even though I've only played for him for half an hour. He's a great bloke. We've developed a great relationship. And I want to play for him in the Champions League. And the club are going, but this is our last chance to sell you, so because yeah. you're out of contract next summer. But, but the other thing with Andy, the other thing with, with with young Florian is that he's he's. I think he was. I might have said this at the time. I think he's a little bit. Um, he's projecting a bit there. I, I think he's got a huge insecurity about the moves he's made in the past. Oh, he does. So, he does. He, so, was, he feels so he was. He feels he was forced into it when he when he went to Newcastle before, and he's like, "Well, you're not going to force me into anything else." just because you need the money. Because A, he's a better player. B, he's a more mature guy now. So he can stand up to the club and say, well, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to take any old move just because it will earn you a couple of quid. Just deal with it. Andy, were, were these, were these, were these um, players who, who clearly, from, from the quotes that Villas-Boas, I've read from, from, from AVB, he clearly wants to keep this team together, but he also wants to strengthen. So what he's saying, I mean, if you take it, if you put aside the COVID situation, which I understand is a gigantic thing to put aside, but just for the purpose of this discussion, in a normal season, Vyash Boas, I think, is within his rights to say, I've done a good job here. 
We're now in the Champions League. That brings money. I want to keep my players and I want to add players so we can compete because I don't want to make up the numbers in the Champions League, right? That's that's reasonable. He's done a good job. I, I don't mean to, is, to undermine him. But, is it reasonable though? Is it well, reasonable? I, I, but that's, that's going to be my question. One was going to be my question, how do you feel about that situation? But secondly, how involved would AVB be in the negotiation of new contracts at a club in France? Is it all done by Aero or would it be done with, with AVB as well? Yeah, it can't, it can't be done by him because, uh, I mean, th- that they have got a huge financial problem. I mean, you can talk about the Champions League money and yeah it's a huge boost to the morale of the club we know the relationship Marseille as a as a fan base in the city has with the Champions League um but the fact is they lost 80 million euros plus last season and mm. they lost 50 million at the halfway they'd lost 50 million by the halfway point of this season those figures are horrendous and there's there's no getting past that so they're way over the top on FF, FFP we can talk about the the, the fact that um you know, UEFA is, is going to be kinder in terms of FFP. But they were way over the top with FFP before any of this started. So mm. them getting off the hook for this would be really, really surprising. Them getting into the Champions League is not an absolute given, I would suggest, at those sort of numbers. Um, although that would be brutally harsh on on the players and on Villas Boas himself. And then you look at, as we say, the contractual situations – where is the money supposed to come from? Uh, you know, how can you reinforce a club with uh, reinforce a team without any money to do it? I think he's asking for the impossible. Do you think he's asking for the impossible on purpose to leverage a move somewhere else? Um, I, I would like to think he's self-aware enough to know that while he's got respect for the job he's done this season, I don't think the whole of Europe is going, oh God, we must have him. I don't, I don't think they're thinking that. Um, I mean, if he's, he's only got a, another year on his contract. If he wants to walk away, he'll walk away and the, the, the club will let him, I'm, I'm sure. Um, even yeah. though it would be it would be tough for them and it, it'll be tough for him because, of course, he wants to take it forward. I suspect some of it feeds into, I, I'm, I'm guessing, again, I'm projecting here, but a little regret that he must have about, well, if I'd have stayed with Porto for that extra year, no, look at the team he had with Oh, Martinho he can't still be thinking about Hulk that, Andre. That Come on. I'm still thinking about that. <laughs> Why shouldn't he be? <laughs> I like I like good old AVB. I've got I've got a soft spot for him ever since he's really pissed off every journalist in Fleet Street for just for being handsome and speaking about four languages and and uh, and, uh, and and them not really knowing how to deal with him. I've got I've got a soft spot for him, but he, he he does need to put down roots at some point. I mean, it's getting a little bit ridiculous now. Um, the, the, so, the one, yeah. the one plus we have to say in, in France is the fact that um, just when you thought that the, the, the dust was settling over this sorry situation that's, that's going on throughout the league, we finally have the prospect of some sort of unity amongst the clubs for the for the, for the first time because the DNCG, which is the uh, financial control board of Ligue 1, has um, sent out a letter to all the clubs saying. Um, we're totally conscious of all the difficulties, all the current difficulties tied uh, to the, the, the COVID-19 crisis. However, <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're going to be more severe than ever when it comes to uh, judging financial conditions. And bear in mind that they've relegated teams for, for, for losses before or for, for, for not giving a, a full um, accounting 
picture of uh, what's going on at the club and not convince them that they're going to get through the season. If you remember at the start of 2003-2004, uh, the season that Monaco eventually made the Champions League final against Porto under Didier Deschamps, of course, Jose Mourinho's Porto, they were relegated at the start of that season before they mm. appealed against the decision. Um, Lille were going to be relegated administratively before they uh, moved a few chairs pretty quickly um, with that season that started with Bielsa and finished with Christoph Galtier the season before before last. So, yeah, uh, at least we know everyone still hates them, right? Pour mieux aller les percuter, pourquoi pas les déborder Oh là, c'est un carton incontestable de Di Biagio. Il est jaune. All right, uh, a little glimpse behind the curtain. Uh, Andy lobbies very hard with me to talk about Portugal every single week. And, uh, <laughs> every single, well, not every single, but most weeks, I, I deny that request in association with producer Charlie. But I'm going to make an exception this week because Portugal might well be the next league to come back. It was set this week as a possible return on June the 4th. Government uh, had previously said in Portugal that play was possible from May 30th. So it was assumed it would start then. But the league said they wanted more time. So it looks like it might be June the 4th. But there have been some issues this week relating to a player's code of conduct that has been issued. And it looks like a maximum of eight stadiums will host games, um, which obviously puts us in mind of the neutral ground issue that is currently dominating the Premier League conversation as well, Andy. Give us a um, give us a little pricey of what's been going on over in your beloved Portugal, and I'll get my uh, natter out and let you uh, let you carry on. <laughs> well, the uh, players' code of conduct was something that was issued. I I guess at least partly in light of what happened with the Salomon Kalou thing in. Um, Germany now yeah uh, it was it was issued about a week after that so I, I suspect the the body of the document was in in there already but it felt felt like it had this extra meaning the idea that players needed to take responsibility for their actions as well and some high profile players led by uh, Danilo the captain of, of Porto um, were just just thought it was it was too much and thought it, it went beyond um, it was it was almost absolving the league of a, a duty of care. Um, right. which, so it's basically putting all the responsibility on the shoulder of the players, basically. I mean, this will be very, very unfamiliar to uh, UK listeners, obviously. Uh, but um, <laughs> I, I think it, it's something that's that's been smoothed over now, um, at, at least, at least um, on the surface of things. Um, the neutral venues thing is interesting though because it was spoken of earlier in the week that there was going to be a, a maximum of uh, six venues where um, games could take place. Um, that is now possibly going to be eight. Now, as we speak, um, assessors from uh, the, the FPF, which is the Portuguese Federation, Portuguese FA, and the league are going round various um, level two and level three grounds as they're classed and seeing if they're fit to to hold these games under the current sanitary conditions. Now, it's a very different situation to um, uh, to, to England for a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, the infrastructure of some clubs, even in the top flight, they won't be able to meet these sanitary conditions in their stadiums. Um, there's questions in terms of the sort of overheads they'll have to pay, especially when they're not receiving match day revenue. And when you bear in mind that clubs, particularly after Euro 2004, 
struggled to pay utility bills on bigger stadiums. Um, some of them anyway, obviously not Porto, Benfica and Sporting, but um, clubs lower down like like Beda Mar, for, for example, who had to move out of their Euro 2004 built stadium. Um, so, I mean, clearly some teams are going to be playing in neutral venues. Now, interestingly, uh, just outside Lisbon is um, the, the, the training centre that the Portuguese FA have and the um, national team go and train at. It's like, like the equivalent of a St. George's Park or whatever. Now, a couple of teams are signed up to to play there already. Uh, Belenenses, perhaps not surprisingly, who who, who play at the um, national stadium normally, um, having uh, moved out of Restelo um, a couple of seasons ago. Um, but also Santa Clara, because they play on the Azores, um, the, the, the islands that are two and a half hours flight away from mainland Portugal. So clearly, in sanitary terms, everyone has to play on the mainland. Now, um, Maritimo, the one top flight club who are in Madeira, have have a problem with this. And uh, their, 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 their president, Carlos Pereira, has, has come out and say, well, look, we're, we're playing in Funchal in Madeira, and, and, and that's the end of it. So, so that is a, a huge problem. I mean, Santa Clara of... of I really taken one for the team here because they've they've said, look, well, their, their official statement was we're going to represent the Azores and you know we're going to we're going to do it on the mainland and it's it's, it's going to be all good and all, all the all the rest of it. But it's a massive thing to ask, isn't it? A team to yeah. play like nine hundred miles away from home. That is not a situation that any of these Premier League clubs are going to have to deal with. And the fact that um, you know you know smaller clubs have um a lot to a lot to gain by playing their 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 games on an island and it makes up for that lack of money for that lack of infrastructure it's a huge thing to 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 ask them to 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 give up really so i can understand why um maritimo have a have a problem with it especially as surprise surprise they're currently fourth from bottom which um you know they're, they're they're unlikely to be relegated, but Santa Clara are in a a slightly more comfortable mid-table position, you might say. So maybe a little bit more open-minded to it. But it looks like there are other teams that are going to sign up to play at the um, the, the national uh, training centre as, as as well. Uh, Vitoria Setubal, uh, Jose Mourinho's um, hometown team, that they're, they're going to as well. And um, Familia Cal. If um, Rio Ave are allowed to play at home in Barcelos, that they will be moving in with Rio Ave for for the moment. Mm. So, um, I th- I, like I said, I think this is this is really important to understand the distinction um, between uh, England and Portugal in in terms of um, in terms of size, in terms of infrastructure, and the fact is that the smallest clubs in the top flight are so deprioritized. When Antonio Costa, the Prime Minister, met with the head of the FA and met with um, the clubs. He didn't meet with all the clubs He met to, to discuss the restarts of the season. He met with the presidents of three big ones, Porto, Benfica and Sporting. And obviously there are people in, in Portugal who say, well, that's typical. But there yeah. are a lot of people out there who simply don't give a shit and, and just see that as, as as normal because, you know, there's 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 not been enough support for... For, for these small clubs. So a lot of them just have to lump it, basically. 
Um, are you suggesting, are you perhaps even implying that if Maritimo were top of the table, they would already be here? They'd already be on the mainland. Right, ready to go. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but my, also, Andrew, that puts me in mind, and we haven't got, we, we really have to go because we, we, we haven't got time to, to get into it in depth, unfortunately. We'll, we'll have to do it next week. Game um, of the week? Um, well, my, well, game of the week is obviously going to be going to be that, but going to be um, going to be Dortmund v Schalke. But but <laughs> let me just let me just put this out there: the, the exact principle you're talking about in Portugal, we could see manifest itself in Spain because of Mallorca, who are third bottom in serious danger of of, of, of relegation. They mm. could find themselves in a, in a similar situation should the league look to bring itself back um, in the near future. I mean, at the moment, it's talking about doing it in the middle of June, so that could happen there as well, right? And it's interesting because they are the last club to take up training again as well. Like once the mm. government had allowed um, the capacity for the teams to train again, um, Mallorca didn't take that up straight away. So I, I, think, that's, I think that's one to watch. But yeah, absolutely. again, just like we've, we've heard um, Gerard Piquet come out and, and, and talk about it, players still need to be convinced. There's still a little gap there. So, um, yeah, we'll have to see how that goes because I, I think one of the one of the big things for Germany is has been how they've convinced the players, at least ostensibly how they've convinced the players. And and speaking of Germany, the games of the week this week are literally any game you can watch on TV from the Bundesliga. BT Sport is your destination for that. Um, so so enjoy it. It's been a long wait. Uh, I shall certainly be enjoying it. I know Andy will too. That's OTC for this week. Don't forget, the boys will be back tomorrow with the preview show. Marcus, Pete, Jim and I um, doing all that good stuff as we do every Friday. Uh, Saturday, as I've already mentioned, is uh, the Blizzard episode, the Gretz Games episode in association with the Blizzard. And on Sunday, there will be another At The Match revisited episode. And I have to recommend it very highly. It's my personal favourite of the At The Match series. It's when Andy goes to Los Angeles and watches LAFC. And the atmosphere at that game sounds so, so good. You've got to listen to it on Sunday, particularly if you're missing what it's like to go to a football match with a good atmosphere, as I'm sure we all are. Um, Do check that one out. It's it's going to be unmissable. Uh, Andy, uh, that's it from us, isn't it? Thank you very much for your company, as ever. Thanks, Ramblers. And it's goodbye from me as well. This was a Stakhanov production.